The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm very pleased to be joined by Jeff Schullenberger, who teaches at New York University and is also a columnist for Compact magazine, which is a new, interesting, radical journal in America. Jeff, I thought I'd start by asking you, because I think we're going to talk about sort of hive minds, the hive minds that exist in America today. And I thought I'd start by asking you a bit about somebody you seem to be influenced by and you've talked about, and that's the French thinker René Girard. He seems to be increasingly important in American thought, particularly on the sort of radical right-left fringes, if you like, of public debate. And we know that he influences people like Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire, who's very influential on the right, as well as many other leading intellectuals in America. What is it about this French thinker? I know that he was married to an American and, and lived in America, but what is it about this French thinker that speaks to American intellectuals today, do you think? I would say, I mean, speaking for myself and other people I know who are engaged with Girard, it really did have to do with trying to make sense of what was happening with the internet in the past sort of 10 to 15 years. People may have read this kind of widely shared essay by the psychologist Jonathan Haidt about something like you know, why the past 10 years have been uniquely stupid or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, was, I think there was sort of a, a new surge of interest in Girard's work, not because he himself wrote about the internet at all, but because he was able to pinpoint certain dynamics that turned out to be quite relevant for understanding what was going on in these online spaces. And particularly, I'd highlight, you know, mimesis, in other words, people's imitative tendencies, right? That once people are equipped with these technologies and, you know, Haidt's analysis is sort of related, you know, where he points out that the pivotal invention on social media sites were things like the retweet button, which allowed, it hypercharged this kind of imitative behavior, right? Where, where you could just see something and immediately sort of boost it and, and so on and so forth. And it would there was little potential for this kind of viral contagion of, of memes and ideas and so on prior to that. And so, or it's not to say that it, such potential didn't exist, but it really hypercharged that potential. And mm. so, you know, Girard basically being focused on how people are fundamentally imitative, but also that that imitation is not, is not merely behavioral, but goes down to our sense of self, that we sort of gain a sense of who we are by observing and imitating others. But then that mm. this also creates a potential for conflict and, in fact, heightens conflicts rather than simply allowing this kind of, you know, magical coalescence of everybody into a, a sort of beautiful, you know, moment of togetherness. What it actually does is, is creates these kind of implacable groups that, you know, find themselves pitted against each other and find their collective identities in that kind of conflict. I suppose he, as a, as a Christian, as a Catholic, René Girard, 
his perception, obviously, as you said, he wrote before the internet, but his perception was that mankind is flawed and has a tendency towards mimetic behavior and also violence. And whereas, you know, quite a lot of philosophy, 19th century philosophy, Rousseau and so on, suggests the opposite, that man is some sort of noble beast that has been corrupted by what might be called Western civilization. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one important thing about about Girard is, you know, he, on one hand, was very influenced by Freud, who we could say is the sort of thinker in the early 20th century who reinvents some kind of notion of original sin, right? Because he sees these kind of, you know, dark, unconscious forces within human beings as, as fundamental and primal, right? And all of the more kind of, you know, enlightened qualities that we've been able to gain through civilization as kind of this, you know, this, this secondary apparatus, which is very fragile, you know. Mm. And so, so Girard um, was, I mean, on one hand, influenced by Freud, but he also, you know, significantly criticized Freud, in part because Freud wanted to essentially divide the tendencies of the human psyche in two, right, to say that on one hand, we have this we have eros, we have this drive towards um, love and, you know, union with others and so on. And then on the other hand, we have Thanatos, the death drive, right? So what Girard does is basically say there's actually a single principle that we can identify here. And it is the source of all the things that, you know, make humans unique in positive ways, right? Our, our capacities for mimesis are what allow us to have culture, right? Or what allow us to have civilization because we can pick up and learn and imitate things that, you know, add up to all of the things that, you know, make us significantly human on the, on the sort of cultural level that, you know, go beyond our sort of mere biology. So we need our sort of mimetic capacities to have any of that. But at the same time, these capacities, as you just pointed to, you know, are, are what, here we might think of the Bible, you know, think of the story of Cain and Abel. Well, what happens after the, the fall from the fall of man from the Garden of Eden, well, basically you have this conflict between brothers, right? And this is sort of the archetypal, sort of mythical sort of conflict that Girard is interested in, where, you know, both of them are seeking the same thing, right? Both of them are seeking not merely a material object, but a kind of recognition, right, of, of their sort of status. And this is what leads one to murder the other, right? And so this is the, the basic, you know, that they are caught in this cycle of envy where, one of them seems to have the thing that the other one wants, but mm. the other one wants it in part because he sees his brother having it. And so this conflict between brothers, I mean, interestingly, is ubiquitous. And, you know, we think of Romulus and Remus, we can think of various other mythical traditions. But, you know, th this potential for violent conflict in Girard's account, but also in the way it's represented in these myths, comes out of this tendency to imitate each other and therefore to envy each other and come into conflict. So the point here is simply that, yes, this is a kind of version of original sin, as I think you suggested. But what's interesting about it is it's not, it's not that, you know, we have these good qualities over here and these negative ones over here. It's that this mimetic capacity that makes us human is also the source of the uniquely human forms of conflict, which, you know, lead us to situations in which we destroy each other. Mm in ways that clearly go against any kind of simplistic form of like self-interest, right? We, we would rather die than give in to or surrender to this other who is our rival. And so this is what, you know, can bring human communities to the, 
break of self-destruction. And how does this relate to America today? I mean, why do you think Girard is becoming such an important thinker for quite a few Americans today? I mean, obviously, it's because the internet is driving a lot of thinking in America. Is that what we're seeing? We're seeing kind of hyper-memetic activity going on all the time that drives the, sort of the national conversation in America and therefore the world or the English-speaking world? You know, I, there are a few ways of, of answering this. I think one, um, obviously, Girard, as you as you noted, was French, but spent much of his adult life in, in the U.S. and, you know, various academic positions. And so, you know, part of the Girardian insight is is, interestingly, that there's a danger in the sort of modern value of equality, because once we see everyone else around us as our equal, they become, you know, potentially, or that, you know, what they have or, or seem to have becomes an object of our envy, right? Whereas, you know, if we're sort of more socially stratified, there's, you know, a sense in which the, the people who I'm likely to envy are, are more limited, right? Whereas there's this kind of potential for explosion of envy when the field of people whom I can potentially envy is, is greater and greater. So I'm, I'm just kind of getting to a point here, which is that, you know, in a sense, what, what this suggests is that the, the kind of founding American ideal of, of equality, you know, carries within it this, this kind of conflictual potential, right? And so there are various ways you can take this, right? And, and I think, you know, in a sense, there's a kind of left Girardian and a kind of right Girardian analysis I'd say the right Girardian analysis, which which does come out of some things that he wrote, particularly about, you know, back in the 1990s about the kind of initial rise of political correctness, is that, you know, on one hand, and, and this comes out of another thinker and, and his engagement with his work, and that's Nietzsche, right, that basically a lot of these kind of modern progressive tendencies we can understand as as driven by a spirit of, of resentment, right, that comes out of the kind of ideal of equality. That in other words, where, you know, once we see ourselves as fundamentally equal and therefore entitled to anything that anyone else might have, then we're going to look around and see other people who seem to have and enjoy things that we don't have and thereby, you know, fall into this kind of envious relationship to them, which is obviously potentially destabilizing. Mm. So... You know, and for Girard, I mean, as for Nietzsche, interestingly, this does come out of Christianity because basically, and this is, you know, rather a, a long and complicated point to explain, but essentially for Girard, you know, Christianity is, is unique in the history of religion because it in many ways kind of dismantles much of the functioning of, of religion in its, in its prior forms, right, which relied on things like hierarchy, sacrifice, kind of various types of ritual. And so, you know, the original kind of thrust of Christianity was, was in a sense to, you know, level and to, to actually assert a kind of equality, right? And so we could argue that this is a sort of source of the modern spirit of, of egalitarianism. But, you know, the, the problem for Girard is that this can kind of devolve into a new source of, con- into new sources of conflict, right? Mm. And so, you know, I think just to, finish up this point. Um, so, so I think, yeah, there's been a lot of interest on the right in trying to think about the ways that the contemporary progressive movements kind of come out of this, this sort of psychology of, of resentment that, and this is, you know, this is where I think that there's something new here, which is that, 
you know, the, the American right historically has been fundamentally kind of liberal or at least classically liberal in most of its presuppositions, right? And I think Girard provides a basis for a fundamental, and it's not to say that he's an illiberal, illiberal or anti-liberal thinker even. I think his thoughts on this are pretty complex, but he does provide the basis for a very fundamental critique of certain ideals of liberalism like equality. Mm. Now, what's complicated in here, I'll just follow this up, is to say, you know, Girard was also interested in the way that all institutions are are derived out of and based on violence, right? And so he saw most institutions emerging out of the practice of sacrifice, which was, as he, in his analysis, the kind of terminal point of this process of kind of mimetic congealment, where a sort of group first descends into this kind of conflict of all against all, but then is able to achieve a kind of new equilibrium by channeling its sort of violence against a single victim, right? And so this is the scapegoat mechanism. And then Girard sees kind of ritualized sacrifices deriving out of that, right? You know, so, so what Christianity does, he argues, is, is expose this basis, right? Is, is show that religions and all institutions are based in this, right? And so it, again, it, it provides the basis for, as he argues, a kind of new ethos of, of peace. But at the same time, it, you know, ideally would not be based on the sort of violent immolation of victims. Mm. But at the same time, he, it opens up the possibility of, of these kind of new unconstrained forms of conflict that can no longer rely on this kind of sacrificial resolution. That makes sense. That does make sense. It's very interesting. What I was thinking about when, when you were talking about that was is the pandemic, which is obviously a major event in the world yeah. in the last few years. And I think you've said before that it revealed sort of mimetic tendencies and, and sort of even the propensity to violence within America. Can you explain what your thinking is there? Yeah. So, I mean, Girard had a lot of interesting things to say about plagues, right, which are, of course, a feature of of myth, Greek tragedy, of, you know, all of these kind of ancient texts. So in other words, the social significance of plague was was grasped by all of these ancient societies, right? And for Girard, you know, the, the thing about plague is that it's, on one hand, you know, these kind of biological, you know, these pathogens have always existed and periodically kind of ravaged communities. But at the same time, what they do is kind of exacerbate and reveal kind of underlying conflicts, right, and bring those to the surface. And at the same time, they, um, they sort of become a sort of metaphorical representation of these deeper conflicts. So let's try to get concrete here. You know, so one interesting thing in the, the experience of the pandemic here in the U.S. was, um, you know, there, <laughs> kind of early on, there was a lot of commentary about how, well, at least one thing that happened here was, you know, nobody's thinking about the culture war anymore, right? <laughs> and of course, we know what happened in 2020 in the end, right? So, so there was this kind of mistaken notion that, you know, on one hand, you have this kind of purely biological danger, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you have these kind of social and cultural conflicts. Whereas instead, what we saw is that these get hopelessly mixed up, right? And they, they become inseparable. And so for Girard, you know, this, this was already, you know, and he wasn't, I mean, he died in 2016, but, you know, much of his analysis of like how the process of plague is represented in sort of ancient literatures and myth and so on is, is very similar to this, that, you know, what happens when you have a plague is that there's this kind of generalized confusion and disorientation that has to do with, on one hand, 
the whole way that a plague circulates is by kind of breaking down barriers between people, mm. right? It, it makes us, it shows our interconnectedness, right? Because, you know, no matter how much you attempt to, you know, erect sort of barrier, you know, think of these flimsy, ridiculous plastic barriers that were put up everywhere. Yeah. Even though it turned out that they probably made things worse in the end. But, you know, so, so we think there's, there was kind of this desperate attempt to create barriers, Right. But then these always broke down in the end. So the point for Girard is that this is identical to and is kind of a, in a way, a metaphor of the way that mimetic conflict also works. Right. That it, you know, we, we sort of desperately try to to kind of uh, prevent it from spreading. And yet, you know, it, it always finds a way of kind of spreading from one person to the other because of this kind of fundamental inter I mean, psychic interconnectedness. Right. Because because we're fundamentally mimetic and you know, look to others in order to kind of orient ourselves in the world, you know, the spread occurs. And so, you know, just to make this even more concrete, what happens in 2020? Well, again, we have this moment of plague, right? And then we have this moment of incredible mimetic contagion over the summer, right? In terms of the the, the wave of protests, mm. you know, and clearly there's a relationship between these things, Right. And, you know, with that wave of protests, we have a real sense of fundamental social crisis, right, of, of a kind of, you know, I mean, you think of all the toppling of monuments, which I've written about some, you know, the sense that you have to kind of return to the foundations of society and kind of, you know, make everything anew. Right now, I, I don't think that's actually what happened, but at least that was kind of the, the sense that people had, right. And so I think this, this confirms and sort of validates this basic insight that, you know, what, what happens with the plague is that it, it sort of dredges up these, these kind of primordial conflicts and, and sort of violent potentialities that, you know, may in normal times be kept under wraps in various ways. Well, do you think that, I mean, if you look at uh, something like Black Lives Matter or something like the, the reaction to COVID, it's a search for unity, right? It's a search for unity. And if you're not going to be cynical about it, search for yeah. unity without violence. But then it quickly breaks down into conflict and hostility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I suppose what I'd also ask is that to an extent, the internet perhaps sort of just becomes a virtual playground for violent conflict. I mean, obviously, there was violence with Black Lives Matter. There has been clashes over, over COVID. But to a certain extent, it just plays out in the virtual sphere it doesn't actually happen in reality as much because the internet is constantly i think as you've said creating new realities yeah you know on the first level yeah the sociologist emile durkheim you know who's a, another influence on girard have this term collective effervescence right which he saw that human communities in these kind of sacrificial moments right these these kind of moments of you know in, in ancient times kind of religious ritual you know, are kind of brought together through these experiences of collective effervescence, right, of the kind of coalescing of a, an experience of, of kind of union with the, the entire community, right? So I think on one hand, and, and again, if you go back to like the positive versions of like what the internet was going to be that were, that people were, um, you know, coming up with like, you know, 15, 20 years ago when there was much more optimism, you know, it was kind of this idea that, you know, it would be a way for everyone to come together, right? But the problem for Girard is that this always has a kind of violent remainder, right? And that is the scapegoat. In other words, that these these moments of collective effervescence always have to come at the expense of someone, right? Or of, or of some group, right? And so here we could think of the unvaccinated, right? Where basically you have to have, you have to constitute this outgroup, right? Who 
who then can be blamed for the plague, right? Who can be taken as the, the sort of agents and vectors of the plague. Mm. And so the kind of coming together that a lot of people said, oh, you know, this pandemic, we're all in it together, you know, which was essentially true, but that oh, we can all just come together and, and as you said, kind of without violence, just uh, come together in an ethic of sort of care and compassion for the collective. But the problem was that at every point there had to be this scapegoat who could be generated, who, who was outside of that togetherness, right? And I mean, in, in terms of your second point, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm usually on the skeptic, you know, if you follow me on Twitter or whatever, I'm usually on the skeptical side of people who, in the context of the US are sort of saying, oh, there's going to be civil war and things like that. You know, if you just look at, like, basic statistics about violent death, there have been some surges in, you know, various kinds of violent crime in the past couple of years. But these do not have to do with politics, right? These don't have to do with culture war conflicts. In fact, you know, what they have to do with it generally is gang violence, where um, there's usually some kind of honor culture, right? And so when you have some kind of honor culture system, the likelihood of actually being willing to die and to be killed for or kill for someone else in your group is much greater. Mm. I don't actually think that the kinds of coalescence that we find on the internet you know, there's a sociological distinction between strong and weak ties. So I would say, yeah, I mean, if you look at the violence between gangs and various American cities, you know, those are based on strong ties, right? These are kids who are recruited to these gangs when they're very young, right? They're initiated in very intense ways. And so they feel a kind of interconnectedness with the other people in the group that is forged by violence, right? But that, you know, actually puts them in a mindset where they will kill and die for the others in their group. I don't think that mm. the culture war conflicts in American politics actually work this way, right? I think that ultimately, and, you know, what we see in terms of, you know, whether it's BLM protests or January 6th, even, you know, what we see is these kinds of, you know, these moments of coming together of groups that are forged online, you know, they tend to be quite weak and fragile. People, I mean, there was kind of a bizarre, like, article that was in the New York Times, I think, that claimed that, you know, maybe we are already in civil war because there's some academic who claimed that, like, if you have 25, I mean, without even population adjustments, it's like, if you have 25 political casualties in a given year, then, you know, that's already something like a civil war. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, sure, but... <laughs> and then and then they pointed out, actually, that in 2020, there were only 17 political casualties. So, so even in that year that was supposed to be most explosive, even by this extremely loose definition, you know, it, it just doesn't seem to be there. So what I see is that, you know, there is a kind of coalescence that takes place on these platforms, but it, it seems to basically be, as you said, kind of virtualized, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to forge the kind of ties that will... You know, I mean, actually engaging in, in physical, you know, violent physical conflict with others, I think requires something quite different in terms of your, your sense of how you are bound to the group. So, you know, there is something very interesting and, and disturbing about the ways that these kind of collectivities have been created on the Internet. But I don't I don't see civil war or something like that as the, the outcome. In fact, as I think you were suggesting, I see something more like you know, it, it functions in a way as a kind of containment of conflict, you know, even though it's quite unpleasant and socially corrosive in some respects, it, do, it does seem to kind of, you know, channel these impulses into these fundamentally kind of, you know, relatively futile and 
<laughs> sort of not necessarily particularly violent forms. Could you say that the internet is to violence what it also is to sex in that it's just you sort of have the pornography of violence on <laughs> Twitter and you don't actually need the real thing? Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. It's interesting to me that, you know, now whenever there's something like a mass shooting, right, which even though these are statistically a relatively small category of like violent deaths, every year they're, of course, the thing that the media actually pays attention to and that kind of feeds into these culture war conflicts. I mean, in a sense, you know, one way of trying to understand these, I mean, I wrote something for Compact about the mass shootings, but, you know, one way to try to understand them is that, in a sense, it's actually the kind of, I mean, it's the sort of enemy, but also just the kind of generalized numbness of, of like physical reality, the way that it's been, it's been kind of um, evacuated. And instead, all of these kind of strong emotions and so on have been attached to this virtual realm that... It would seem that, and, and I mean, I've read things to this effect that, you know, a lot of these these people who perform these acts are so, um, they're kind of almost in this situation of like not being convinced of the reality of their own sort of world, right? That they're, they're so immersed in these kind of virtual spaces that they're like, you know, the, the physical world has become kind of numb and meaningless to them, right? And so in a sense, these acts of violence are, a sort of attempt to, you know, a kind of reality testing, as Freud would call it, like an attempt to, um, through the most extreme and horrifying act, to kind of regain some sense of reality itself. So yeah, I mean, I think usually people talk about these, again, through this kind of idea that somehow social media and so on is is prompting people to do these things, usually because supposedly it radicalized them or whatever. But But I think there is a way that, you know, this kind of virtualization of, of everything has you know played a role in kind of exacerbating some of these this kind of malaise that seems to afflict the the perpetrators of these acts well that connects i think to something you you just wrote about for compact which is a article it was almost sort of film review i think about david cronenberg's crimes of the future but you talk about how body horror has become our reality there's been quite a lot of written about transhumanism and does this connect to uh, the amount of time we're spending in the sort of virtual realm enacting violence there? And then we seem quite willing to increasingly mutilate our bodies, do things to our bodies, because we're losing touch with our sense of reality. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this film, which, you know, I, I recommend people see if they have an, if, if they have a strong stomach, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty grisly in parts, but... Um, the photograph on your article almost put me off. Yeah, you know, I argue in the piece that, in a, you know, it's called Crimes of the Future, but it, it was actually written in the 1990s, the script. So, you know, we can in a sense see it as crimes of the present, although, you know, it's not, it's not exactly our reality, but it does have some interesting um, correspondences. One of them is that people have essentially ceased to feel pain for the most part. So, you know, people have essentially become numb in this way. Another one is that, you know, people have mysteriously begun to kind of sprout these new organs, which may be tumors or, you know, according to others in the film are, you know, the, the signs of some kind of new stage of human evolution, right? And so, you know, in a sense, the conflict in the film is between those who see these as tumors that need to be removed, although the way that they're removed is through these kind of aesthetic spectacles where, you know, they're essentially a performance art where, you know... <laughs> this kind of surgery is performed and with, with all of these kind of entranced onlookers. Right. And so anyway, that's the, that's the basic scenario. 
So yeah, mm-hmm. it, it has this the situation in which people become numb. The I mean, as is the case in several of Cronenberg's films, you know, the kind of surrounding world is is sort of decrepit, and you know, it's it seems as if there's a, just kind of disinvestment in the the sort of surrounding like physical reality. It, everything feels kind of decayed, and people seem to spend their lives consuming these spectacles. You know, someone is, I mean, these spectacles of like surgery, surgical removal, mm. right? where like the main thing people do is go and observe these weird neo organs being removed from people. So, yeah, I mean, I think going back to what you were pointing to, you know, clearly this is a film about, you know, the various kinds of sort of transhumanist projects that are prevalent today. And I'd say some of those projects are, you know, more conscious, others are more accidental, almost. And, you know, I argue in the piece that the way that people have kind of envisioned this sort of thing has often been through something like The Matrix, where essentially the body is is placed in suspension, and instead we're immersed in these kind of dream worlds, you know, virtual dream worlds, right? Mm. Whereas what Cronenberg has always shown is, is something quite different, which is that the body is always kind of part of these processes and is itself radically modified and transformed through them. And so, you know, here we might think of just the way that phones and other kinds of devices become like, you know, organs that are basically permanently attached to us, right? And then, of course, you know, there are people in Silicon Valley who want to move to the next stage and actually directly kind of install these in our brains and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, including Elon Musk. There's that dimension of it that we've all kind of become part of. And it's it's remarkable how many of these kind of Silicon Valley people are overtly transhumanist in there. You know, they, they see the future of humanity as this kind of increasing merger with technology, mm. you know, of the body with, with the machine. And, you know, in a sense, we've all been kind of subject to that experiment without really, without really quite grasping what we were doing, right? Or, or signing up to yeah. it. Yeah. And then, you know, so I think the two things that struck me seeing the film, you know, where essentially the body is a kind of terrain of the major conflict, right, is that, you know, if, if you think on one hand of, of particularly mRNA vaccines, right, which are, are this kind of, you know, somewhat uncanny entity, right, which not only, um, you know, and I'm not, one can make this point pretty neutrally and just... You know, they, they are this kind of novel and uncanny entity. And, you know, we've actually had people obligated by governments to have them inserted in their bodies, right? Mm. And then, you know, on the other hand, we have um, the whole sort of domain of gender transition and so on, where basically, you know, th- there's this kind of enthusiasm for bodily transformation, which, you know, is is taken to be a kind of form of self-realization, right? And so, you know, part of what's interesting here is that if you think about how a lot of these these sort of communities were incubated in various online spaces, right? But essentially what, what has come out of that has not been a purely virtual identity, but a kind of enthusiasm for all kinds of bodily modifications. Now, I'm going to bring up a particularly disturbing example, what I think is a disturbing example, which is, you know, that we have this, like, invention of a, of a non-binary identity, right? And then, you know, what seems to be the case, and again, if, if you have a strong stomach, uh, you can look this stuff up, but, 
you know, is that there are these, at least in the U.S., there are these surgeons who are essentially offering to turn people into essentially sex-neutral beings, right? So they're offering a surgery called nullification, right, that essentially transforms people into a physical form that, you know, is neither male nor female, right? So this is very Cronenbergian kind of situation, I would say. Yeah. You know, I think part of what's interesting is that this whole notion of a sort of non-binary identity as it's currently conceived, that's not to say that there wasn't, you know, a whole long tradition of kind of androgyny and so on in art and various cultures and so on, but, you know, this this basic idea of a kind of neutered, a sort of, or sex-neutral identity, you know, seems to have basically emerged out of sites like Tumblr and so on, right? But now it is actually being physically realized in insofar as, you know, apparently these surgeons are actually offering these procedures. Mm. So I guess... Part of why I think, even though it's not framed in exactly these terms, um, I think Cronenberg's film really, you know, is strongly evocative of, of the way that a lot of these conflicts kind of have to do with essentially the future of the body, right? And then, I mean, just one other thing that happens to be on my mind because I was reading about it is that, you know, another sort of controversial subject in, in the sciences, and particularly sort of environmental epidemiology is... You know, I mean, even beyond the kind of deliberate injection of things like estrogen and testosterone and so on in in bodies, you know, that there has been a huge explosion of, of these uh, xenoestrogens, for example, in, you know, all kinds of substances, pesticides, um, you know, plastics, building materials and so on, right? And so according to some arguments, you know, that there is a kind of increasing crisis of fertility in human beings, but also in other species, in part because of this kind of seeding of the environment with these substances that essentially mimic estrogen, right, mm. and thereby essentially have a kind of sterilizing effect. Now, this is this is controversial. I mean, there are scientists studying this. Then there are kind of, you know, these weird um, online communities that are particularly obsessed with these, these ideas and see them as a kind of, you know, part of some kind of plot against men. You know, what I will say about the Cronenberg film, just one other thing, is that he, you know, part of the point of the the film is that there's this conflict between these people who believe that these organs that people are sprouting are part of an evolved response to the toxicity of the, the sort of environment that's been uh, seeded with all of these pollutants and substances through industrial development. And so what these, these people who are, are sort of a secret sect in this film believe is that, you know, what we need to do is embrace the um, appearance of these new organs because they will bring us to a new stage of development where um, we will be in harmony with this totally artificial environment we've created because, they argue, they will enable us to digest, you know, these completely toxic substances and thereby <laughs> exist kind of in, in a new sort of equilibrium with this completely poisoned kind of environment that we live in. And so this is sort of the argument. I mean, this is the, the view of this, this sect in this film. And so I think, you know, what it also points to is there's a dimension of transhumanism that is completely involuntary that simply has to do with the sheer physical artificiality of our environment and the way that that is itself, to some extent at least, changing our bodies, right? Regardless of our, you know, particular takes on, you know, certain culture war positions related to this stuff. 
Jeff, I think what, what you're describing there is sort of self-mutilation, self-harm, violence against the self, dressed up as self-actualization or self-realization. But I mean, violence traditionally finds a way of being about the other, and usually that's through war, right? Not culture war, not necessarily civil war, but actual war. And of course, there is a war happening, which could become potentially a far greater war in Eastern Europe. And I think Americans seem to have reacted slightly differently to Brits about this, but it has also been a viral phenomenon. You know, particularly you can see reactions to Ukraine, the flag of Ukraine and so on, that had a mimetic quality in the early stages. So I wonder what your your thoughts were about the war in Ukraine, particularly coming as it does after a plague. You know, war is the, the inevitable result of them. Yeah, so... I mean, one thing that was interesting was, you know, I was actually in the UK briefly in June and people told me that, I mean, I was at a conference with people from from there and from the continent and they, they said that this is actually even more the case there. So I don't know if this is your experience, but the point I'm making is, you know, the weekend that that happened, you know, we had had this sort of Omicron COVID wave over the winter, which kind of put people back into kind of very cautious mode, although basically everybody got it anyway. But, you know, really, it seemed as if when that happened, it really, um, suddenly the bars and restaurants were flooded with people. So it, it was kind of a strange effect where, you know, it was as if, I mean, people talk about this in terms of this, like, the current thing terminology, but like, mm. there can only be one real sort of current thing. And so once war happened, and became, you know, everybody added the Ukraine flags to their bios and things. It kind of crowded out COVID, right? And so the way people experienced it was kind of this switch over to this this other kind of dominant narrative that kind of allowed for a, something of a forgetting of the... And, and you know, I, I'd say from here, I think it was different in, in Europe, but, you know, from here it's also, it feels far away, you know, so it it's sort of abstract, mm-hmm. even though, you know, people are sort of, particularly on the left, you know, on the liberal side of things are sort of intensely engaged emotionally with this, in part because I think Putin can function as a kind of, you know, they don't have Trump to kind of orient their lives around yeah. excoriating anymore. So, you know, Putin kind of brought that back in a, in a helpful way, because they're seen as sort of interchangeable figures. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there was a weird, you know, beyond the the specifics of the war itself, just in terms of the psychological response to it, it was it was very odd to observe the way that it really it seemed to bring about this complete shift in in orientation, and you know, in in that sense, it really it reminded me, you know, that moment of switchover reminded me of what happened with BLM in in two thousand twenty, where you know, just this and. I mean, and then just to finalize, I think what's kind of interesting here is that, like, in both cases, there's a kind of, I think, confirms some of Girard's ideas that, you know, that there's a kind of interchangeability between the violent, you know, various kinds of violent conflict and the realities of plague, right, that, that one can, in a sense, substitute for the other and serve the same kind of psychic function. Mm. Well, you've brought it beautifully round to back to Gerard, which is where we started. So I think we'll end it there, Jeff. That was very interesting talking to you. I do hope we'll get you on again. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 